you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. This morning we'll be considering Genesis 46, 1, all the way up through chapter 47, verse 12. We'll, uh, we'll break, up, uh, break up the reading, though, and so first we'll, we'll look at uh, chapter 46, verses 1 through 27, and then we'll come back uh, later on in the service and we'll pick up reading uh, there in verse 28. But we'll begin Genesis 46, verse 1. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanak and Palu and Hezron and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jacob and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, and Eob, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and all his daughters, number 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, and Hagi, and Shuni, and Esbon, and Ari, and Erodai, and Arali. The sons of Asher, Imna, and Ishva, and Ishvi, and Bariah, and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, and Beker, and Ashbel, and Gera, and Naaman, and Ehi, and Rosh, Muppam, and Huppam, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob. There were fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, and Guni, and Jezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, 
who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. So we left off last week at the end of chapter 45, seeing the brothers returning to their father Jacob, and we saw there Joseph's parting charge to them, do not quarrel on the journey. And then when they arrived back with their father in Canaan with the wagons that were sent by Pharaoh, at first Jacob couldn't believe the news, right, that their long-lost brother, his long-lost son, was alive. It was unbelievable news. He'd been gone for somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 years by this point. How could it be that he was still alive? And even more, how could it be that he was now ruler over Egypt? But we're told that when he heard the words of Joseph that were relayed to him and when he saw the wagons, his spirit revived, he believed what he was told, and he says there at the end of chapter 45, it is enough. My son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. This was news that seemed too good to be true, but it was true, and Jacob believed it, and so he's ready to go. And as he sets out for Egypt, he passes through the territory of Beersheba on the way and stops there to offer sacrifices. And the Lord there appears to him and offers him the assurance needed in order for him to go to Egypt. It's noteworthy here that the Lord reveals himself to Jacob there in, uh, in verse 3 by saying, I am God, the God of your father. Isaac himself had sojourned in Beersheba back in Genesis 26, verse 24. The Lord had appeared there in Beersheba to Isaac and had said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you, and I will multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And we're told that after the Lord had appeared to Beersheba, uh, to Isaac in Beersheba on that occasion, that Isaac built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord there. And there are some similar uh, circumstances here in Genesis 46 with what had existed there in the case of Isaac back in Genesis 26. And so just as the Lord had promised to be with Isaac, so here he promises to be with Jacob, that he would go with him down to Egypt. And moreover, it is quite significant that he assured Jacob that he should not fear to go down to Egypt. Egypt had always had a uh, difficult relationship, we might say, with, with the patriarchs, right? Abraham had gone to Egypt during a time of famine and had gotten into some trouble there on account of Sarah, his wife. Isaac, uh, for his part, had been explicitly forbidden by the Lord from going down to Egypt during a time of famine. He was told explicitly to stay in the land of Canaan and to sojourn there in Genesis 26, 1 through 3. But here, under different circumstances, the Lord tells Jacob not to fear, to go down to Egypt, that the Lord would be with him, and that the Lord would bring him up again, by which we must understand not he himself personally alive. He was ultimately buried in the land of Canaan. But we, we see this fulfilled ultimately in his posterity, in his descendants. Jacob himself died in Egypt. Joseph closed his eyes as the Lord promised. But as we know, his posterity, his descendants, went up from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And so in this, this opening appearance of the Lord to, I, uh, to Jacob in chapter 46, we, we see the Lord speaking 
to Jacob these words of reassurance and comfort and blessing. What a comfort for him to know that indeed Joseph was alive, that indeed he would see Joseph before he died. What a comfort to know that he could uh, go down to Egypt with a completely free conscience, that the Lord was going to be with him and that the Lord was not going to leave his descendants there, that ultimately they would be brought up out of the land of Egypt. So Jacob's going down into Egypt was not going in any way to jeopardize the promise that the Lord had given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to him as well about the land of Canaan. They could go down now for food and they would be brought up later on. And the same Lord who appeared to Jacob here in Genesis 46 was the Lord who appeared to him at Bethel back in Genesis 28. And it said, Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This same Lord who promised to be with him and bless him back then, when his troubles were kind of just beginning, as he's on the run from Esau, running to Laban, the same Lord is still with him and is still blessing him. Now, we can't be absolutely certain as to what all was going through Jacob's mind while he was passing through Beersheba and making his way to Egypt, but it may be that he was somewhat apprehensive and uncertain about this and perhaps fearful. And I think given the Lord's words to him there in verses 3 and 4, I think there's there's good reason to suspect that Jacob was feeling those things. But the Lord showed up and strengthened him and encouraged him that he was indeed on the right path. Go ahead, go down to Egypt. You'll see Joseph there. He'll close your eyes when you die. Now, obviously, this word of the Lord was particularly directed to Jacob at this particular moment under his present circumstances. And so the lesson to be gleaned here is not, and let me be adamant, the lesson to be learned here is not that when you feel nervous about a decision you need to make, just just go ahead and do it, and the Lord will be with you and bless you, and it'll be all right. That's not the lesson to learn here. These words, again, are specifically directed to Jacob at this particular moment. But, nevertheless, these promises of God concerning his presence with Jacob, with one of his people, should turn us to very similar promises that we have concerning the presence of the Lord with us. And so, for instance, we read in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, For he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We should remember the promise of Jesus in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we should remember that we have the promise and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised this in John 14, 16 and 17, when he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Our God has promised to be with us, and therefore we don't need to be afraid or alarmed when life is hard and circumstances are, are difficult, and when we might be tempted to wonder 
how we can continue to press on. We need to remember the promises of the Lord's presence. Now, on the other hand, when we see our sins, when we see the depth of our own depravity, when we see the weakness of our faith, and counter that with the strength of the world, the flesh, and the devil that are all arrayed against us, we might well wonder how we can persevere through this life and continuing uh, to trust in Christ and continuing to walk with him. And when we have such thoughts, we should look to the word of God and its promises. Places like 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, where we're told that Christ will also confirm us to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Despite our weakness and our proneness to sin, we have the word of Philippians 1.6, which reminds us that he who began a good work in us will continue that work on, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And though right now our sanctification is so incomplete and our obedience to Christ is not what it ought to be, our love toward one another in the body of Christ Sometimes cold, our love toward God himself is sometimes cold. Yet, nevertheless, we have the assurance of 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, he also will bring it to pass. Now you see the the point of connection here. The Lord promised Jacob that he would go down with him, that he would be with him. And though, again, our situation as believers is different from that of the patriarch Jacob, nevertheless, we too have the promises of the Lord. Promises concerning our salvation, promises concerning the preservation of our souls, promises concerning our sanctification, promises concerning the Lord's presence with us. Indeed, we have that word of 2 Corinthians 1.20, that as many as are the promises of God in him, that is, in Christ, they are all yes. Just as it was with Jacob. If you are a believer in Christ, the Lord will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll provide for our physical needs as he sees fit, and he will provide for our spiritual needs. He has given us, as we find in those opening verses of Second Peter, everything that we need for life and godliness. He's given us all of these things in Christ. And he'll complete in us this work which he has begun, and he'll bring us ultimately unto the land promised to us, which is our eternal inheritance. And so just as these promises of God were meant to be encouraging and strengthening to Jacob as he was headed to Egypt, so... The promises of God, which are ours in Christ, are meant to strengthen us as we journey on in this life and as we point continually forward to our heavenly home. Now, in in what follows here in uh, in Genesis 46, especially beginning there in verse 8, we have this, uh, this layout of the family of Jacob. And so we see that Jacob not only has 12 sons, but he also has descendants from those sons. And we have a total of 70 persons in his house now being in Egypt once, uh, once he has gotten there. And in this, I think we're beginning to see the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. 
that the Lord would make him a great nation. Because if you think back to Genesis 15, he, has, he was worried about who was going to inherit his estate. He was worried that it would have to be Eliezer of Damascus, this servant apparently, who would inherit his property because he himself was childless. And it was then that the Lord took him out and showed him the stars of the sky and said, so shall your descendants be. And here we're beginning to see the the greater multiplication of the nation. And of course, as you get into Exodus chapter 1, they have exploded as a people group. And so we observe here that God is faithful to his promises. And what we see here is is a small down payment of greater promise that was to follow. And even so, it is as our lives, in, in our lives as Christians. And so we, we read of, of Paul speaking of the Holy Spirit as a, as a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance to come. And so for, for us as Christians, we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is at work in us. He's given us new life, brought our hearts from being dead in sin to alive in Christ. He's given us faith and he's working to conform us to the image of Christ. This is the down payment of the future full payment that will be ours in the end when we go to be with Christ. And so when we, uh, when we see these, uh, these things in scripture that are indications of God fulfilling his promises, we should look ahead to the promises that are ours in Christ. We should see how they're already beginning to be fulfilled and then anticipate the ultimate fulfillment when we go to be with Christ. Now, let's look ahead and uh, we'll be, pick up reading there in verse 28. Now, he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. When Joseph went in, And told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn. In the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in all the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land, and let them live in the land of Goshen. 
And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. Now, as the, uh, the family arrives in Goshen, we have this, this joyous, very joyous reunion between the father and the son. And Jacob is ready to die now, right? His, his bucket list, as it were, had been fulfilled in finally seeing Joseph Alive, He says, now let me die since I have seen your face and you are still alive. And then comes the, the royal introduction as Jacob takes his, his five brothers and his father and presents them before Pharaoh. Can't be for sure, but we probably can suppose he took the five who would make the best impression on Pharaoh into this uh, royal appointment. And the... Interesting thing is the, the fact that they are shepherds will make the Egyptians want to keep them at arm's length, right? The text at the end of chapter 46 tells us that every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. The Egyptians don't want any uh, close association with shepherds. And so uh, Joseph had been angling to get his, parent, uh, his, uh, his father Jacob and family settled into the land of Goshen, and sure enough, that was uh, what Pharaoh agreed to. And there's something helpful here is that the very fact that the shepherds were loathsome to the Egyptians helped to serve to preserve the identity of the Israelites. It kept them from mixing and mingling with the people of Egypt such that their identity as a people would be lost, and also them going to Goshen. Uh, would, would keep them separate. Matthew Henry commented on Joseph's actions in trying to angle for them to get settled in Goshen and said he would have them live by themselves, separate as much as might be from the Egyptians in the land of Goshen, which lay nearest to Canaan and which perhaps was more thinly peopled by the Egyptians and well furnished with pastures uh, for their cattle. He desired that they might live separately that they might be in less danger both of being infected with the vices of the Egyptians and being insulted by the malice of the Egyptians. And so they're preserved from assimilating, as it were, into the Egyptian culture. But I think for our purposes, we ought to pay special attention to this interchange that takes place between uh, Pharaoh and Jacob in verses 7 through 10. We see uh, Jacob coming in and he, he blesses Pharaoh, asks for the Lord to be, to be gracious and good to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh asks what to us might be an odd question, right? He asks about Jacob's age. Now, for some of us, we might not be, might not be too thrilled, right? Somebody asking us, especially in a first meeting, about our age. But apparently in some cultures, this is uh, not so distressing, it being seen to be a great honor to live to an old age. 
And we need to look at Jacob's answer to that question there in verse 9. See how he answers. He says, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained to the years that my father lived during the days of their sojourning. Now, there are several things that we ought to observe there in in his words. Someone has said, and I I think this is right, that sometimes just even the little things that we say kind of tip our hands and show what's what's back there in, in our hearts. And I think we see some of that going on here with Jacob. For one, he acknowledges his life to be shorter than those of his father's. Isaac had lived to 180 years. Abraham, his grandfather, had lived to 175. Jacob is now 130, and ultimately we know from later on in chapter 47 that he died at the age of 147. So even when he got to his death, his, even still, his age had not attained to the length of days of his fathers. And the second thing that we, we see there, and I think this is where we see him tipping his hand, so to speak, is that he refers to both himself and his fathers as sojourners. Right? And we, we've seen this in the, in the book of Genesis before, especially uh, in regard to, uh, to Abraham when he was purchasing the, the plot of land uh, to bury his wife Sarah upon. And the theme is this, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were sojourners. They lived in the land but did not possess the land. And therefore, uh, as we heard from the book of Hebrews earlier this morning, the writer to the Hebrews speaks of Abraham by saying, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And Abraham himself had said when he purchased that plot of land from the sons of Heath in Genesis 23, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. And Jacob here speaks similarly, right? He speaks about his own sojourn and the the sojournings of his father. And therefore it is that that passage in Hebrews 11 goes on to say, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they had went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So these these patriarchs were strangers and aliens this earth wasn't their home. They were desiring this, this better country, this heavenly country. And indeed, we find that in the Old Testament, this was the mentality of the godly, not only of the, the patriarchs before Joshua and the conquest of the land, but this was always the outlook of the godly, even when things were as good as they could get. And so David speaks in Psalm thirty-nine, twelve, and says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, like all of my fathers. And those words, stranger and sojourner, are the same words that Abraham had used of himself in Genesis 23, verse 4. And David puts those same words in the plural 
in reference to the entire people of God. First Chronicles 29.15, as preparations are being made for Solomon to build the temple, he pr- says in prayer before the Lord, For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. And so this is, this is how it has always been for the people of God. They've been strangers, sojourners, aliens here on earth, and looking for the heavenly country. And certainly we find this theme in the New Testament as well, expressed in a multitude of ways. And so Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And we find Paul speaking in Ephesians 2.6, saying that we've been raised up with him, seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he says in Philippians 3.20 and 21 that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power with which he is able to subject all things to himself. And so the point is, is that all of God's people are just like the patriarchs. We're strangers and sojourners here. Maybe we own our own homes, maybe we live in apartments, whatever. Even if you own your own home, you're still a sojourner here. Or if you're not, you need to be. Our hearts are in heaven already, if we're in Christ. And when our time here is completed, then we will be there ourselves. And so we have to, therefore, recognize that this world is not our home, and then the hard part is to start living like this world is not our home. And so Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-nine to 31, where he says, Those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. So we have to recognize with Job that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. We have to recognize, as Hebrews 13, 14 tells us, that here we have no lasting city, but we're seeking that city which is to come. Such are the people of God. But contrast that, on the other hand, with the way that David describes the ungodly in Psalm 17, verse 14. He calls them Men of the world whose portion is in this life. Men of the world have their portion here, their treasure here, their hopes here. Some men of the world have a lot and they relish and revel in what they have. Some don't have a lot, but they revel in what they have or in what they hope to obtain. But Jesus tells us, Mark eight thirty seven, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and yet forfeits his soul. His point is, it doesn't profit you at all if you gain everything here and lose your soul, because if that's you, you're the loser. The way to profit is to be a sojourner here and to lay up your treasures in heaven. And the way to begin, if you've never started living as a sojourner here on earth, the way to begin is to turn your back on the world by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ 
Son of God who came to earth to die on the cross and to rise again for sinners. And if you have more questions about what it means to turn your back on the world, to turn away from your sins, to trust in Jesus Christ and have your hope set in heaven and not here on earth, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to turn your back on the world and to trust in Christ. Now, there's another item here in Jacob's words, uh, which he speaks to Pharaoh. He describes his days as being few and unpleasant. Don't you see that there, where he says there in verse 9, the years of my sojourning are 130, few and unpleasant, or few and evil, have been the years of my life. And in one sense, I think we can, we can see what he means. We can, we can grant what he says in a way because in many ways his life has been hard. In many ways I think it's not a stretch at all to say that his life was tragic. Some of this was his own fault. Some of this was the fault of others. And so just, just think with me through uh, the earlier chapters in Genesis that, as we've worked through them. Think of these kind of tragic, difficult events in the life of Jacob, right? Before he was born, the Lord had spoken to Rebekah about his twin brother and him, that the older would serve the younger. The Lord had indicated that the birthright and the blessing would be his. But, as we know, Isaac and Rebekah each had their favorites. Isaac picked Esau, Rebekah picked Jacob. Jacob wanted to give the birthright and the blessing to Esau rather than to Jacob. Jacob was the crafty one and the deceiver. He convinced his brother to sell him his birthright for that mess of stew. And then Rebekah put Jacob up to being the deceiver and tricking Isaac for uh, the blessing. And he did those things. He shouldn't have done it, but he did them. And he roused the anger of his brother against him, had to run away from home, fearing that his brother Esau was going to murder him. And where did he run? But to his uncle Laban, loving uncle Laban. And there he met the love of his life, Rachel, had to work seven years to get her. And it turned out to be a bait and switch that took, took place that night in the honeymoon suite. And Jacob didn't know it till the next morning. And so he had to work another seven years to marry Rachel. Following that, there was all the the family drama, the two sisters competing for children, their concubines thrown into the mix, and so you have uh, one messy family situation, to say the least. You have Jacob having more difficulties in his relationship with Laban uh, as his employee, manager of his flocks and herds, Laban changing, uh, changing the terms of his employment multiple times. And then there was the the flight from Laban as Jacob and his family secretly left Paddan Aram to go back to the land of Canaan. There was his fear, uh, which he feared about meeting his brother Esau, fearing that this man's going to try to hunt me down, kill me, maybe kill all of my family as well. His daughter Dinah was raped. His sons Shimeon and Levi killed the whole town of Shechem. His beloved Rachel died in childbirth as she gave birth to Benjamin. His oldest son, Reuben, slept with his concubine, Bilhah. There was the loss of Joseph for 20 years plus. Jacob had believed that Joseph had been torn by wild beasts. Then there was the famine, the imprisonment of Simeon for two years, and uh, possibly the loss of Benjamin. And Jacob, as we saw a few weeks ago, said, all these things are against me. All these things are against me. 
there's a lot of tragedy, a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty for one life. If any of us had a fraction of those things, say one quarter of those things, we would think our life was a complete wreck. Few and evil were the days of Jacob's life. Few and unpleasant. He had seen and experienced evil. He himself had committed some evil and reaped sometimes what he sowed. His life had been hard and tragic in many ways. And maybe you can relate to him somewhat in that way. Because life can be very painful in a fallen and sinful world such as the one in which we are living. We all suffer evil that is done to us by others. Even children know what it is to suffer when evil is done to them by others. And then to compound the problem, we commit evil deeds and actions ourselves, which brings with it both guilt and consequences. Indeed, our days are evil as well as Jacob's. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.16 that the days are evil. They are. And this can be overwhelming sometimes. Just think with me of some of the psalms in which the evil of the times and the evils of life are bewailed. Psalm 10, verses 1 and 2. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Psalm 12, 1 and 2. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Psalm 53, 2 and 3. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, any who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 79, verses 1 and 2. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple and have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of heaven, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. Think of Psalm 88, verses 3 through 5. My soul has had enough of troubles. and My life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. This is life, right? The days are evil. Sometimes it's because of the evil out there, the evils that others do to us. And sometimes, unfortunately, it is our own evil, which we have done, which comes back upon our own heads. And we can understand why Jacob would say what he says here, and we can understand what the psalmists say in so many of those psalms. Indeed, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9.12, Man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Life's hard. The days are evil. But is that all? Can nothing more be said than that? The days are evil. Deal with it the best you can. It's not all that can be said. Well, surely not. Though there was truth to what Jacob said here, especially when viewed in a certain light, it was not the whole story. And Jacob 
Jacob clearly understood that, and we'll, we'll see, Lord willing, next week a different side of Jacob's story from, from chapter 48, where he refers to God as the one who has been his shepherd all of his life to that day, the angel who has redeemed him from all evil. Right? So, so Jacob, Jacob gets there's, there's more than one side to this, to this coin. But it was true that Jacob's life was tragic, it's also true that Jacob enjoyed the blessing of God. And again, we've seen this through, uh, through the book of Genesis. Think back to Bethel when the Lord appeared to him in Genesis 28. He said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have accomplished for you all that I have promised you. And when Jacob was oppressed by Laban, as he was working for him and as he was talking to, to Rachel and Leah and planning how they were going to, to get out of there, he saw how God had been good to him. He said, the God of my father has been with me. God did not allow him to hurt me. God has taken away your father's livestock and have given them to me. He saw the Lord's gracious dealings with him despite everything evil that Laban had been doing to him. And when he was returning to Canaan and was facing the prospect of that Scary meeting with Esau, as he prayed for deliverance to the Lord, he said, I am unworthy of all of the loving kindness and of all of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. So even in the, in the midst of all that he was going through, he still knew that the Lord had been faithful, the Lord had been kind to him, and that he was unworthy of it all. And now we see in our text for today that God had blessed him by allowing him to, to be reunited with his son. And so, yes, his days were evil. Yes, his life was tragic. But despite that whole litany of tragedy, the Lord had still blessed him greatly, step by step along the way. The blessings and the grace of God had been strewn all along the path. And friend, if you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, then I assure you it is the same with you. Now, depending on where you're at, you may look back, on your life and your experience, you might be thinking of your life up to this point and say, yes, the days are few and unpleasant, few and evil. Maybe it's because of what you've done, maybe it's because of what others have done to you, or perhaps both. But if you're a Christian, I urge you to look beyond the evil that you've endured and look to the blessing of God. Can you not see the blessings with which God has blessed you. Can you not see how God has provided for you and how he has sustained your faith, continued to build you up from day to day? Can you not see how the Lord has been good to you spiritually, how he has continued to provide for your soul? Though we all deserve eternal judgment, though we all deserve eternal evil days because of the evil that we have done, Nevertheless, the Lord has sent a Savior to us, His only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And He came into this world to save sinners like us. He died on the cross and rose again so that we could be forgiven from all of the evil that we have done so that we would not be condemned. And now, in the gospel, this grace is freely offered to us. It's freely offered to us for all who will believe and come through faith. And we know that God is sovereignly in control of all that will happen to us. And therefore we can say with David in Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? 
We can say with Jeremiah in Lamentation 3:21 and following, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. And don't you see it? That it's when the Lord is our portion that we can have hope. It is then that his compassions don't fail because we've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good. And we know that this world is not our home, that days are evil here. And we're looking ahead to the eternal reward, the eternal promised land. And, of course, Jacob understood this as well. As we'll, Lord willing, we'll see more next week in Genesis 48. Jacob understood that the Lord is good, even though the days are evil. The Lord is good, the Lord blesses his people, and his loving kindness never fails. And therefore we must give praise to him, we must rejoice in the Lord always, and, as the old hymn says, count your blessings. See how the Lord has provided for you, how he has blessed you, As we move forward here in our pilgrimage, we have to be seeing the Lord's kindness and blessing despite the evils and tragedies of life as we move ahead to our eternal promised land where our hearts and our hopes must be set if we are in Christ. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that the evils and the tragedies that we see here would wean our hearts from a love of the world that we might long to be with you, to be with Christ, which is better by far than anything here on earth. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be wise and faithful, that we might live as strangers and sojourners here and continue to trust you and patiently await the heavenly city, which is our eternal destination. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.